1: This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Trapped by the Reformation and endless reactions against it, it's difficult for contemporary Christians to escape ongoing and silly theological debates about grace and salvation. Everyone cheapens the Master's grace by treating it either as a free pass or as some mystical force that controls their lightsaber. The only way to understand grace is the way the writers of the New Testament use it, as the currency of the pater familius, who approaches his underlings with an offer they can't refuse, a gift free of charge with a charge. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 47 to 50. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos,
0: And this is Dr. Richard Benton.
1: And you are listening to episode 402 of the Bible as Literature podcast. One of the things we do behind the scenes on the Ephesus School Network is get together to learn from each other. And recently, Father Dustin Lyon did a beautiful presentation on Roman history. He was explaining how the Roman household worked a bit like the mafia in the Godfather movies. And this term grace really is like the favor that Don Corleone does for someone who's in trouble. It's a kind of payment. So when you hear Paul talk about grace in Ephesians, I've been going over this in my Tuesday night Bible studies, Rich, trying to explain that Paul enumerating all the things God has done is not good news because he's calling in a A favor, that's the context in which you have to hear this word "charis." For this reason, (laughs) harin, I'm going to call in a favor while I'm in prison, which means you're going to pay back what you owe. There's an accountability for what God has done for you, for the clothes he's put in your closet. Along those lines, when the dawn comes to you to speak to you, He is, as you've said many times in our conversations, Richard, he is the senior talking to the junior. And when the senior says to the junior, friend, which happens only three times in the Gospel of Matthew, you can't think of it, as Father Paul likes to say,
0: as a Hallmark card. (laughs) When you owe somebody something, and that somebody has everything how do you repay? That's the dilemma. The way that it works in the Italian mafia, I mean, it's the Roman household, you owe loyalty. And when you're asked to do something, then you do it unquestioningly, which, you know, can make one nervous for clear reasons, because you don't know what you're going to be asked to do. In the gospel, you remain loyal to a very explicit teaching And that teaching is the law of love, and that's what you're to remain faithful to. So out of the grace given from God, you remain faithful to God's teaching and therefore love the other. That's why when you, the believer, face the poor, you are looking in the face of God. That is who you are serving, because that's how it transfers. God is not poor. God has everything because he is the creator of the heaven and the earth. So human beings are to look upon the poor around them as God because that is how we are to treat God. We are to give him everything in spite of the fact that he already has everything. Now, when we have friend that keeps appearing, we have the friend of the man without the wedding garment. We have the friend of the workers who thought they were getting An unfair deal from the boss when they only got one denarii for working all day instead of a denarii for working just a couple hours it's always the senior saying wait a second I thought we had a deal and I thought the deal was you're gonna dress like everybody else I thought the deal was you're going to get paid a denarii for the day friend I thought we had a deal that you're going to be my student
1: I did all this for you I came to you with a favor I did this thing for you, and I did it for free with a charge, as we like to joke about Paul's letters, that the gospel is free of charge with a charge. Just think back to the Godfather movies, especially the first movie, when Don Corleone says, I'm going to do this thing for you, and then one day I'm going to come back and ask you for a favor. That is how the gospel works. There is a reciprocity. There is an accountability for what's given. So it's painful the way you're describing it, Rich. I appreciate your characterization of this interaction that's coming with Judas. We had a deal. What's going on here, friend?
0: We take it so nonchalantly. When Ezekiel talks about the eschatological city, he talks about obedience, obedience, obedience there. And, you know, people who, like, don't want works-based Salvation, or, you know, all this kind of stuff, or, oh, salvation is only by faith, and no, 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 no. There's not only faith. There's not only grace. There is no grace by itself. The grace comes with an expectation. You don't get the big meal and then reject the way that one conducts oneself. You don't get the teaching from Jesus and then just go and use it however you want. The point of getting the teaching is that people go and use it they use it the way that they can. I can't judge whether you or somebody else is using the gift in the right way. Only God can tell. But we cannot be nonchalant about the grace and the love and the gift that are given by God, because there is work, there is expectation, and there is duty that's expected.
1: While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Once again, we have immediately a reference to the Twelve. Judas is one of the Twelve. He is, in a way, a representative of the Twelve, and I think we've established clearly that he is not the only betrayer among the twelve. And when I say we've established this clearly, you have to go back and listen to previous episodes and our discussions about the Gospel of Matthew. Judas is a kind of figurehead because of the importance of the tribe of Judah, because of its station among the twelve. Judas, in this sense, is the friend of Jesus because he represents that kind of kinship that companionship, that closeness, that even familial closeness to Jesus. He's a relative of Jesus, not Judas as a person. Come on, can we move past this personal identity nonsense? We're talking about what he represents as a function in the story. Now, if this becomes a Sunday school class about whether or not Jesus has relatives, then I give up on you as a student, dear listener. That's not what I'm saying. If we're talking about a relative or a cousin or someone close to Jesus, it's to stress the problem of betrayal by those closest to you. It has nothing to do with who is related to whom. So that's what Judah represents. That's what Judas represents. He's the figurehead of the betrayal, but he's not the only betrayer, and in his role as figurehead, he represents all those watchmen we just talked about who were close to Jesus and who were snoozing when the thugs were coming. They fell asleep while their buddy Judas went to go get the thugs, and to be honest, why didn't one of them ask where Judas went? It's an important question, Rich.
0: Yeah, this question of the watchman, I'm happy you brought that up, Father, because when I read in Ezekiel, and it, he keeps repeating that that's Ezekiel's job. Ezekiel's job is to warn when the wrath is coming, and it's to reiterate the prophecy. It's the prophecy that gives life to the dry bones, but it's also the watchman that gives life to the city so it doesn't get crushed by the enemy. When Jesus asked for them to stay awake, I never heard this before, but it just seems to me that they had a duty to do that maybe could have protected Jesus from Judas and his mob. That was a powerful
1: insight last week, the connection to Ezekiel, because we make out of that moment in Gethsemane a discussion about the liturgy, and that's not what's going on. Jesus is not engaged in a liturgy, that he wants them to attend. He is doing the business with his Father, and as you pointed out last week, Rich, he needs them to do their duty as his men and keep
0: watch, and they wouldn't do it. And Jesus knows that he is a wanted man, specifically by the chief priests and the elders of the people, and they indeed sent a mob with Judas. They sent Judas to lead the mob, to Jesus. That was his job. So the mob here, I keep using this word mob, but everywhere else where we've been talking about this in Matthew, we called it the crowd, the ochlos. This is just an ochlos. This is just a big crowd who were eating the bread in the wilderness. They were eating the loaves and the fish. You know, these crowds that are always following around. And remember, Father, how often we said don't trust these crowds because as soon as the miracles stop, They're not going to believe you anymore. They're not going to believe that this is the Messiah or their leader. They're going to want more tricks and more miracles so that they can believe. And it didn't take long for the chief priests and elders to say, oh, no, no, there's no miracles here. It's just trickery of this guy. And sure enough, they were turned. It just took Judas and a few chief priests and elders, and it completely turned the mob. So you cannot trust the ochlos. And, you know, we keep talking about this in Matthew, Father, because we talk about the crowds that follow this or that preacher. Yes, a preacher can get this or that crowd to follow them, but we can see how little it takes to turn them against that very preacher. They aren't interested in the teaching. They're interested in what they get out of it. They're interested in the emotions they get from it. They're interested in the wonderment that they get from seeing the amazing things and hearing the amazing words of these people. It's not about amazing. It's not about wondrous. It's about duty and about following the words. And Judas turned from Jesus, colluded with the chief priests and elders who were jealous of Jesus's authority, and very easily turned the crowds against him.
1: Now... He who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. This execution is sealed with a kiss, mafia style. Michael Corleone kissed his brother Fredo with the kiss of death. And it's painful to hear. You want to say painful to watch, but we're not watching anything. We're hearing a text. We're looking at words on a page. The kiss as the kiss of death, words like friend and kiss and Judas, insofar as Judas represents the tribe that's related to Jesus, his own people, his own kin... All of these symbols deepen the pain of the betrayal of the favor, the grace that was paid by the senior to the junior. Hey, I did this thing for you. I thought we had a deal. Everybody understands betrayal, but betrayal in a Roman setting is more painful and heightened because the whole system is based on grace and honor and payment and duty and reciprocity. So Judas really looks bad in this scene.
0: This is such a mystery for anyone who's reading scripture to try to make sense of. You can't not try to make sense of this because we have this character in the story who says, Hail Rabbi. And the same way as he said rabbi when they were having the meal together, but as he's been listening to and learning from Jesus, who now want to betray him to the mob, who now want to betray him to the chief priests and elders, and he doesn't say, now you're going to get it, scoundrel. He still says, hail rabbi. It's an enigma that he would say this. This is one of those tricks in the story, these holes or discontinuities in the story that make people's imaginations run wild. Why would Judas still say, Hail Rabbi, when he could say anything he wanted? Why is that what he said? He's obviously trying to betray him. He's trying to get rid of him, whatever. Why would he still use these words of respect even to someone he so openly betrays? It's peculiar. It's not what we would expect. He doesn't say, now you're going to get it. I know what you've done. This is the end, Jesus. He doesn't say anything cool like that, like you'd have in an action movie. He says, hail rabbi. Why would he say this? Now, a lot of the stories then that spin out from this is like, okay, he's trying to start a riot. He's still being political. He's still trying to do something. He's trying to say something to the crowds or something like this. But it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit that he would say, hail rabbi, that he would still use these words of respect to someone he's turning over. What is it that causes Judas to, even in this situation, still call him rabbi? Jesus is still Judas's teacher. Judas is betraying the teacher, and by betraying the teacher, he has rejected The teaching. Now, we went back before we were talking about how at the meal, everyone who had their hand in that tray was going to betray Jesus. Betrayal looks like whipping up the mob against the teacher while you still proclaim him as teacher. This is the deepest betrayal. If he said, look, Jesus, I'm done, I'm leaving, you go your way, I go my way, and watch your back. If he did that, there is somehow more honor in that, that he's sticking to his guns. But even in his betrayal, he can't reject Jesus as rabbi for whatever reason.
1: But Richard, isn't that what Peter did? And isn't that the point? It's easy for us to see that Judas is an open betrayal. But Peter was an open betrayal. I'll never throw you under the bus, Jesus. And then in the next scene, he snoozes while the thugs come. That's open betrayal. You openly state your loyalty, and then you openly forsake your duties. If a soldier in the Marine Corps was responsible to watch someone's back during a firefight and they took a nap, they would be court martialed. I don't think it's subtle that Peter is an open betrayal. That's the point. And it won't be subtle when Peter denies Jesus later in the story. That's open betrayal. So you have to see the tragedy of Judas and understand that it reflects on others in the story. He's a kind of pointer. And he doesn't just point at Peter, he points at us. Because each and every one of us betrays the gospel constantly we give lip service to jesus that's why the church community is the most condemned of all and we have to stress this point we have to fight for this point because we really believe that because we go to church we're better off we're worse off because we go to church And we imagine somehow that that's an advantage for us, and then we act the same as people who don't go to church. And often we behave worse. I've had the chance to go on Holly's podcast recently, Richard, the Thulos program. And one of the points that came out in our conversation was that there's no difference between a manager and a Christian manager because the function manager is the function manager, period. And very often people who present themselves as Christian managers are far worse than the others. We have to hear this scripturally and understand what I'm saying. When you hear the gospel and put on fancy clothing and sing beautiful hymns, and then behave the same as everybody else which is a fact and you cannot say that because you fast on wednesday and friday you behave differently that's not what i'm talking about that's no distinction whatsoever we are talking about how you treat your neighbor and in the end you have to be honest with yourself do you act truly in a way that is different than the others and we know we don't if that's the case and then somehow we believe we're different than the others, then we're lying to ourselves. And not only are we betraying the gospel, but we betray it blindly, which is deadly. And that's why the story of Judas and the story of Peter's betrayal, which we're blind to because we project our imaginary sainthood onto Peter, and then we're scandalized when we find out that Peter is condemned in the gospels. That's why it is critical that we hear this betrayal clearly, because we are all betrayers. And we in the church are the worst of all. That's why we have to keep hearing the prophets, Rich. So glad you brought Ezekiel up last week.
0: I'm thinking about your military metaphor. I'd like to kind of push this a little bit more. Say you are a lieutenant leading a company in Vietnam, and you are expecting watchmen to watch your back, and they snooze on duty. While they're snoozing on duty, one of your other soldiers is going and getting a crowd of villagers to come up and take you and capture you or, and do whatever to you. And when this disloyal soldier comes, he salutes you. Why would he salute you? Why doesn't he spit on you? Why doesn't he do something? And we can only imagine, is it because it's a mockery of the salute? You can do it like that. Is it because the soldier believes that they're doing the right thing and the lieutenant is not doing the right thing, and that they're saluting some higher ideal in the face of this lieutenant who he no longer trusts in. This is why we have to fill in these gaps with Judas, because it's difficult. But like you said, Father, there are all different parts here that conspire. Judas is not conspiring on his own. If Peter and the others had been awake all this time, they would have said, hmm, there's a bunch of pitchforks and... uh, torches coming up the hill. Jesus, maybe it's time to go find another place to pray. But because they were snoozing, they unwittingly and unintentionally played their part in the conspiracy and only made Judas's job easier to betray his rabbi.
1: Here, in his response, Jesus is reflecting his acquiescence to the will of his father. Whether he is asking, Why have you come? or saying, Do what you've come for, and there's some disagreement in how to translate this text, he is giving in to the reason that Judas is here. He knows why he's here. He's not pushing back, he's not resisting. It doesn't really matter to Jesus that his watchmen have betrayed him, because at the end of the day, he knows the will of his father. If his watchmen had tried to defend him, he would have asked them not to, which we'll talk about, obviously, next week, when Sleepy finally catches up to what's going on. So, it's beautiful. After all this has taken place, Jesus just Allows it to happen because his father is allowing it to happen. And they seized him. It's important to note, Rich, you know, we were saying that this word friend occurs three times, it occurs three times in its usage as a senior speaking to a junior. It's also used in Matthew to refer to the children calling out to their fellows.
0: And this verse is just more incongruity on incongruity. Why would Judas be calling him rabbi when he's treating him very much like trash? And why is Jesus saying, what you came for, do it, or why did you come, however we're going to translate that. Why does Jesus say anything? Why isn't Jesus condemn? Why doesn't Jesus say, Judas, I think you're doing the wrong thing, or Judas, I think you've made some bad choices. Like, he's not saying that. He's like, whatever you got to do, do it. He is explicitly with his words not putting up a physical fight, and he's laying this on Judas. What is the culpability of these other disciples in allowing this to happen with the crowds. How do the crowds turn so quickly on Jesus? There are a lot of pieces here that raise questions, and I think it's going to take more time studying this to really come to grips with this, but what we do know is that this is all about betrayal. The crowds turn against Jesus the disciples fall asleep on Jesus. Judas explicitly comes up to take Jesus away while he calls him his teacher, his rabbi, his great one. Because of this, the betrayal against the teaching is unavoidable.
1: Thanks very much, Dr. Benson. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.
0: The Bible as Literature is a production
1: of the Ephesus School Network.